Let's um, ask God's blessing on this time, and we'll, uh, we'll jump into these verses. Oh God, we give you thanks for these words to us, ancient words, strange words, challenging words, and yet um, we know that they are words meant to do us good, and so we ask your Spirit's guidance and your Spirit's help in understanding them and making them plain and applying them to our lives. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Um, So this is the last Sunday of the liturgical calendar, which I know nobody else in this room except for me cares about. Um, But it is, uh, we read the Bible on a three-year cycle, and it's the end of that cycle. Advent is always the beginning of the year. It's the new year. Next Sunday is New Year's for the church in terms of the way that they mark time. And in order to finish off the year, we have a departure from our ordinary reading schedule where all of the readings are themed around the idea of the reign of Christ, Christ the King. This is called Christ the King Sunday or Reign of Christ Sunday. And it was developed, the the lectionary, the appointed readings, was actually developed hundreds of years ago by the Catholic Church. Uh, But now most Protestant churches have developed their own cycle of readings. And if you read all of the readings on a, on a yearly basis, all four each week, you're going to get through about 20% of the Bible, which is better than zero. So it's, it's quite a good way to get into Bible reading. But this Sunday, this Christ the King thing, is a relatively new addition to the calendar. Um, it isn't old, 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 like some Catholic things are. It's relatively new because it started in 1925 by Pope Pius XI. And it was started in 1925 to push back against all of the rise around Europe in particular in nationalism and secularism. Uh, It was originally celebrated on the last Sunday of October, which took place right before All Saints, but in 1970 they moved it to the last Sunday of the liturgical year, the Sunday just before Advent begins, which is the beginning of our calendar. And it's intriguing because in our current culture, obviously here, secularism, that secularism that was so feared by the Pope in 1925, is pretty pronounced, probably more pronounced than it ever has been. And you've heard it many times, but the fastest growing religious category in our country is those who take none. None. That's the fastest growing uh, religious affiliation. People who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And so the reality, whether we like it or not, is that we are Christians living in an increasingly post-Christian world, a post-Christian world. Now, over the past years, I've also felt an increasing dissonance between imagery that we have in the Bible as Jesus is this humble servant trying to reform his own faith community from the inside out, and this image of Christ as a powerful king, a king of the universe, enthroned at the right hand of God Almighty. And I'm sure that this, is, this discomfort in myself is probably stems from my American upbringing, where we are taught from really little to really, really, really be suspicious of things like monarchs and emperors and kings and this, that, and the other. So I'm, I'm willing to admit that. But I also think there's an added dynamic of a widespread distrust that's developed in the Western world, uh, a mistrust of institutions, an entrust, a mistrust of power, that has ultimately come to shape our cultural discourse since about the late 1960s. And that for many of us um, that are still around, um, to think of Christ as exalted in glory and in power often for some people evokes more suspicion 
than it does trust. It's interesting because we've just now, this week, had a new government formed, and in order for that government to form, they have to have the blessing of that institution that we call the crown uh, through the governor general. That's the way it happens. And so while we may think these things are old-fashioned, they are still relatively real. They are real dynamics in our society. Um, and of course, now we're going to have this, um, we've always said Kiwi innovation is the best, and we have now Kiwi innovation and MMP, where we're gonna have these three parties get together and try to form a functioning government and get things done. And reactions in the public are obviously wide-ranging. People um, on social media, the ones that I follow, you know, people saying, finally, it took long enough, let's get onto it. And people thinking that, you know, this announcement is the beginning of the end of the world. Um, and so, and everything in between. Um, but of course, we would, I think, be remiss if we didn't pray for the success of any government in our country, um, particularly a success for that government to be good leaders and to take care of the most vulnerable uh, around us. If we think of um, the way in which um, the Bible talks about um, leadership, we, we get this sense that king, monarchy, emperor, these aren't the only metaphors in the scriptures. Another equally powerful metaphor is the metaphor of shepherd. And you will recall this metaphor from some of the best-known scriptures. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. David was the shepherd boy who became king. The reading from Ezekiel's um, reading this morning, Ezekiel 34, finds God, or the Lord, in the midst of a big rant. The Lord is complaining about the shepherds of Israel. You shepherds have not strengthened the weak sheep. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness you have ruled them. The shepherds, in Ezekiel's mind, have failed in their job. Another context clue in this passage is that when the Lord is speaking about shepherds, the meaning points to more than those who are tending bleeding animals in the hill country. A shepherd was a well-known established metaphor in ancient Near East for leaders of people, kings and rulers and priests. And while the rulers of Israel were not leaders of the temple, nonetheless, they had religious authority. The metaphors here are stark and clear. The shepherds have not only neglected their flocks, but also abused them. The wonderful turn in this passage concerns the very turn from being an impersonal God to a personal God. The Lord in this passage refers to the sheep multiple times before changing to the personal, uh, my sheep. The sheep to my sheep. And just as the Lord blames the shepherds for falling short, in this passage the Lord takes personal responsibility for making right everything the shepherds have made wrong. Step by step the Lord counters the failings of the shepherds by asserting, you have not strengthened the weak, I will strengthen the weak. You have not bound up the injured, but I will bind up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed, but I will bring back the strayed. You have not sought the lost, I will seek the lost. If we think about our world, our world in terms of shepherds as leaders is filled with failed examples. 
Examples of leaders who have failed their sheep, have not taken care of their flocks. The nightly news is a testament to the failures of all the people in responsibility of leading and caring for their people. Of course, the Middle East is a perfect example. And while it's interesting that it's very common and very popular to take sides at the moment, the one thing that must be said is that um, it's very, fairly easy to say that on both sides of this conflict, both groups of people have been successively failed by their leaders in terms of peace. Just the other day I was reading that over 70% of Israelis want to dump the government. Over 70% of Israelis think that they're prosecuting this war in the wrong way. They would rather the government prioritize the return of hostages through peaceful means, whatever it takes to get the hostages back, than to invade. And similarly, on the other side of the Palestinian cause, right? There are half of the residents of Gaza are under the age of 18, and they have lived their entire lives in a war zone. Many of them were born into conflict. Many of them don't know what the conflict is actually about, but that their lives are utterly devastated each and every day. The things that we take for granted, like clean water and access to food and medicine and safety and all these things that we take for granted have been, for their entire lives, an enigma. Something that they just don't know what that means. And successively, over the past 50 years, right, that conflict has been failed on both sides by leaders, bad actors, groups who've chosen the course of political violence in order to achieve their aims of liberation. In my own country, things are much the same. A large proportion of the electorate have decided that they don't think their leaders or their institutions work on their behalf. And they've seen successive politicians from both sides of the political party make promises and then turn their backs on them, seemingly. And this frustration has built and built and built over generations and has opened up space for people who will give them even the smallest sense that things can and will change. How common the refrain now is among politicians in America, the the irony of the statement, only I can save you, only I can save you. But there's another mention of sheep in the Bible, and it's a story that was assigned for this Sunday that we chose not to have read in church, because you probably know it off by heart. The story that Jesus tells his disciples about sheep and goats and how they'll be separated based on how they treat the least of these. Again, in that story, just like the Ezekiel story, God will do some sorting, but it will be based not on how they are treated, but how they treat others. How they treat the sick and the prisoner and the hungry. In that story, there's a twist, the twist of imagination. Jesus says that when you interact with these people on the margins, when you help them, you are really helping Jesus. In the Quaker faith, there is this belief that each and every person holds a light within them, and that it is the responsibility of each person to defend that light within each other and within the other. As one Quaker uh, philosopher said, my Quaker morality will not permit me to assign to God the work of peace that rightly belongs to us. It is tempting to think peace will happen for us or to us, 
but it must happen through us and because of us if it is to happen at all. What this person is imagining is a sense of faith that has at its center uh, an imagination about the future, which is precisely what the Bible is meant to evoke in us. A role, the role of imagination and the way that it plays in to our life of faith and how it trickles down into our daily decisions. That's what this Christ the King, the reign of Christ, is meant to be about, this sense of using our imaginations to imagine ourselves as citizens of another kingdom, citizens of heaven, to have a different sense of right and wrong, to have a different sense of where history is going, to have a different sense of who matters in society despite who the powers that be tell us matter in the first place. To see Christ in the stranger requires a sense of imagination. And this is hard work, and it's the hard work that we're meant to keep on about. Because the threat is always imaginative laziness, that we stop being able to imagine, that we stop being able to see Christ in the other. Fred Craddock, a great preacher, put it this way. He said, the ability to look at a starving child with a swollen stomach and say, well, that's not my kid. To look at a recent widow and say, it's not my mother. See an old man sitting alone in the park and say, well, that's not my father. It is the capacity of the human spirit to look upon the world and everything that God made and say, I don't really care about that, which is the temptation and the indifference that both Jesus and Ezekiel want us to watch for and avoid like the plague. So as we come now, to the beginning of the new year next week, the season of Advent, as we prepare ourselves for Christmas, we are invited into this imaginary season of waiting where we rehearse the coming of Christ again and again. And we know what it's like to wait. We know that our brothers and sisters all over the world in conflict zones know what it's like to wait for an end to war. And at the center of that waiting is hope. And this morning we are invited to hold on to hope, to still have hope that God is not far away, that God is not as impersonal or absent as we would imagine, that God cares and God is utterly involved and beside us in our anxieties, in our joys, and in our sufferings. Our hope is also that God has chosen to make us God's instruments of shalom, that beautiful Hebrew word which means peace that is all in all. So this morning we hold on to these images, to our imaginations, and to the God who is revealed as Christ the shepherd, lovingly taking care of all of us and inviting us to take care of those around us. Thanks be to God. Amen.